I invite you to open your Bible or one of the few Bibles to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 9, the reading beginning at verse 14. But prior to the reading of the Word of God, let us receive the instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism printed in the bulletin, and it is chosen specifically uh, because of its uh, connection with this passage and with the sermon for the day, although that might not seem at first obvious. I hope that by the time we get to the end of the sermon, you will be able to make the connection concerning the between the uh, catechism's teaching on the Holy Catholic Church, that is, the one worldwide universal church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world, and this passage which we will here this morning. So, from the catechism, what do you believe concerning the one worldwide holy universal church of Jesus Christ? I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a church chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this church, I am and always will be a living member. Let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, we give you thanks that in the grace and mercy given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, you have called us to be your people And we pray now in his name for the blessing of your Holy Spirit that we would rightly receive, understand, and respond to your Holy Word, that we would be built up in faith, more deeply united to one another in our bond with Christ, and more effectively live as your people upon the earth for the glory of your name. Through Christ our Savior, amen. We continue the sermon series through Romans, chapter 9 now, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. And to his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. This is another difficult passage, and so I'm going to begin this morning, by, as I did last Sunday, by telling you what the big, big idea of this passage and this sermon is. <laughs> so here it is, and it's summed up in the last phrase of this passage in verse 33. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now think about it with me. In the overall context of Paul's letter to the Romans, that declaration is virtually the same or very near the same as saying, whoever believes in him will not be condemned. No condemnation. Or to say it positively, just flip it around, Whoever believes in him will be justified. So in the overall context of Romans, the big idea here is still the big idea. Don't miss it. The big idea is still the big idea. Justification by faith, no condemnation, no shame for whoever believes in him Jesus Christ. Now, whoever in the overall context of Romans and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, whoever means Jew or Gentile. This is exactly the point expressed way back in chapter 1 as Paul introduced the gospel and declares, I am not ashamed, not ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek Gentile. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, whoever believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentile. Therefore, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Big idea. We can see that this passage today, concluding at 9.33, is still about the core issue of the gospel, which Paul has been expounding ever since chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone for whoever believes. It sounds very much like a verse which I think most of you know by heart. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, Jew or Gentile, believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now all of this probably sounds very familiar to us. We live 2,000 years on the other side of the cross. We live 500 years after the Protestant Reformation. But in Romans 9, you see, Paul is wrestling. He is wrestling with this gospel promise in the context of first century Israel's unbelief. He's wrestling with first century Israel's unbelief in light of this gospel promise. Now, last Sunday, we entered this new major section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, and we noted that at the conclusion of the great eighth chapter of Romans, Paul revels in the assurance that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then immediately thereafter, in chapter 9, he expresses great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Because his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, that is the majority of first century Jews, had rejected and were continuing to reject Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. So we need to understand the first century context here in order to understand this passage and make applications to our lives today. When the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, the institutional establishment infrastructure of first century Judaism, which from our vantage point we might call Old Testament Israelite religion, was still in place. And by that I mean... The Jewish temple still stood in Jerusalem. The Jewish high priest still had his position. The priests carried on sacrifices in the temple. The great Sanhedrin, the supreme Jewish court, still ruled over the Jewish people. It was all in place. Now, all of that old covenant Israelite institutional religious establishment and practice came to a terrible end in the year 70 A.D. when Rome 
leveled Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Hold that thought. 70 AD marked the end of the world for the old covenant establishment, Old Testament Israelite religion. But when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, you see that old covenant Israelite establishment was still firmly in place and was operational. And this official institutional old covenant first century Jewish establishment vehemently and violently opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ in this time period in which Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And it brought great sadness to Paul's heart. Now let me pause to make clear that this has nothing to do whatsoever with any kind of malicious anti-Jewishness today. There's no basis for any kind of anti-Jewishness in this. This is simply a matter of historical fact that we need to know in order to understand this passage. And, as we noted last Sunday, the Apostle Paul himself, Saul of Tarsus prior to his conversion, was one of the principal persecutors of the earliest Jewish Christians. But, but first century establishment Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah raised a troubling theological question with which Paul wrestles in this passage. Had the word of God failed? Had God's plan to redeem Israel failed? Now last week we heard the first half of Paul's answer to that question. No, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Verse 6. And we saw how Paul took us all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob and Esau to show us that, in fact, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of Israel, God had always been calling and redeeming his elect people, not merely on the basis of their ancestry, not on the basis of their works, but only on the basis of his mercy. Salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 16. And then Paul refers to the way in which God dealt with Pharaoh in Egypt. God chose to use Pharaoh as a means by which to display his power and glory and his mercy to Israel and to all the earth. Hold that thought. So says Paul, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. But that raises objections. Since God has mercy on whom he has mercy and has compassion on whom he has compassion, then how can God still find fault with unbelievers? Who can resist his will? But Paul will have none of it. God's just judgment upon Pharaoh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, was due to the fact that Pharaoh had already hardened his own heart. Pharaoh was a cruel tyrant who oppressed the Hebrews in Egypt and ordered the slaughter of their male infants. Pharaoh couldn't blame God for his hard heart. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was a just judgment. 
He simply gave Pharaoh what he wanted, an even harder heart. But now, stay with me because Paul's point, here we're making a, the first little shift, the first little click. This is the first step, so here we go. Paul's point is that first century Israel's hardness of heart against Jesus Their unbelief was not God's fault either. Stay with me. God was using first century Israel's unbelief, hardness of heart, for a purpose. Just as he used Pharaoh's hardness of heart for a purpose. To make known his power and mercy In all the earth. That's the parallel. As strange as it may seem, Paul was likening first century Israel to Pharaoh. And, says Paul, God has the sovereign right to deal with hard-hearted first century Israel in the way that he pleases for his purposes to reveal his power and justice and mercy in all the earth, just as he dealt with hard-hearted Pharaoh to reveal his power and justice and mercy in all the earth. To prove his point, Paul alludes to a passage in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 29, in which the Lord speaks to rebellious Old Testament Israel, saying, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And Paul elaborates on this passage from Isaiah saying, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, doesn't the potter have the right to do with the vessels he has made as he pleases for his own purposes? Doesn't the potter have the right to use the vessels he has made for his own purposes as he pleases? Then the passage gets really tricky. In fact, difficult. At verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, as he did with Pharaoh in Egypt, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction because of their own unbelief, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now here's where it gets difficult. And controversial. Some people interpret these verses to mean that God, the potter, actually creates people, vessels, with the sole intention and purpose of pouring out his wrath upon them so that his mercy upon others 
will be all the more gloriously revealed and that it is his sovereign right to do so. Well, that makes for stimulating and controversial theological discussion. But I think it misses the point of this passage. I'm not in the least denying individual predestination and election in Christ. This passage affirms it by pointing out the individual election of Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. But but there's something else going on here when Paul refers to vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. In this passage, remember, all the way through, Paul is wrestling with the problem of first century Israel's unbelief, their hardness of heart against Jesus. But Israel's, first century Israel's hardness of heart is nothing new. All the prophets of the Old Testament confronted Old Covenant Israel for her hardness of heart. And God had dealt patiently. He has endured with much patience. Old Covenant Israel's hardness of heart for centuries since the time of Moses even visiting judgment upon her, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans, to bring them into humble submission so that they would receive the Messiah by faith and not by their own works. But no, Jesus, while bearing his own cross to Calvary, lamented over Jerusalem saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings to save them, to protect them from the fire, the fire. And you were not willing. Jesus, on the way to the Golgotha, And prior to that, in Matthew 21, there's a parable Jesus told about a master who planted a vineyard, which throughout the Old Testament is symbolic of Jerusalem, and leased it to tenants. And when the master sent servants to collect the fruit, the tenants beat, killed, and stoned the servants, God's prophets to Old Testament Israel. Then the master said, I will send my son, saying, They will respect my son. But they took the master's son and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus concluded with this punchline. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, hard-hearted, old covenant establishment Israel, and given to a people producing its fruits. And Matthew tells us, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Now the point of connecting this parable with Romans 9 
is to show that the history of Old Testament Israel is the history of God's patient endurance with Old Testament Israel's hardness of heart and unbelief. But it came to its climactic conclusion with first century Israel's rejection of Jesus, God's Son. Their heart was hard with unbelief. And so, as Paul will tell us in chapter 11, quote, a partial hardening had come upon first century Israel. As a corporate body, first century Israel did not believe. And as a corporate body... They were therefore vessels of wrath prepared for destruction due to their own unbelief. And Old Covenant, Old Testament, Establishment Israel did indeed suffer total destruction in 70 A.D. Just as Jesus himself had prophesied and had taught his disciples. But here's the point. One more step. Even Old Covenant Israel's hardness of heart served a purpose in God's plan of redemption. So now here we go. We're getting back to the big, big main idea. Just as God used Pharaoh's hardness of heart to reveal his grace, his power, his mercy in all the earth, So God used first century Israel's hardness of heart to show His grace, His mercy, His power in all the earth. That is, to the Gentiles. That's the point. Finally, God's covenant promise to Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham to bless all the families of the earth in Him would be fulfilled by the gospel going To the Gentiles, Paul's point is that not even Israel's unbelief could thwart God's covenant plan and purpose. Despite and even through Israel's unbelief, God was still working out His purpose, still proving Himself true to His promise. Paul's point is that through Old Covenant Israel's unbelief, which brought upon them the judgment of being vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, God would make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, says Paul. This is, this is right here in the text. Even us, whom He has called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. This is God's covenant to Abraham being fulfilled. Paul is speaking here about the formation of new covenant Israel. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles united in Christ. The quotation from Hosea. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. Paul applies to the Gentiles who believe in Christ. The quotation from Isaiah. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea... Only a remnant of them will be saved. Paul applies to the believing Jews who believe in Christ. And so it is today as well. Through faith in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile are brought together to form the new covenant Israel of God. As Jesus himself said to the hard-hearted chief priests and Pharisees of old covenant Israel, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And that people is the new covenant people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, 
comprised of Jew and Gentile, the whoevers of the world from every nation. And, and, and in this passage, Paul is telling us exactly the same thing that the Apostle John tells us in his magnificent prologue in chapter 1 of his gospel. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, meaning true Israelites by faith, Jew or Gentile. To all Jew or Gentile who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That gets us back to the big, big idea, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, very, very quickly, what are the implications and the applications for us today? First of all, that today we hear the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our salvation, our being redeemed as a child of God, depends not on anything that we have done, but on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness received by faith in Christ. Secondly, that we understand that our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is ultimately about something much, 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 much bigger than ourselves. As I said, we, we, I, the, the Bible affirms individual predestination, election, those whom he foreknew he also predestined, those whom he predestined he also called, those whom he called he also justified, those whom he justified he also glorified. That's, that's a glorious truth for all believers in Christ, but there's a bigger truth, and it is so that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. This is about the glory of God. Our salvation in Christ is not about us. It's about the glory of God and His work throughout history to redeem a people for Himself by the blood of His Son. This is the grand sweep of history. That's the reason we read the Heidelberg Catechism. From the beginning of the world to its end, the Son of God chooses, preserves, protects a people for Himself. We're caught up in that God's great work of salvation throughout history. And therefore, that, that means that we ought to view our salvation not in a self-centered kind of way. Got my ticket punched. No. But in a God-centered kind of way for His glory, which in turn reorients our lives to live our lives now on earth in a God-centered way instead of a self-centered way. Thirdly, big, big picture, Jesus Christ is building his church throughout the world and throughout history by his sovereign power, and he will not fail. Though a hardening has come upon Western Europe, the land of the Reformation, though a hardening has come upon Western Europe, 
wants the heart of Christianity in the world. Though a hardening has come upon the United States in our day, though cultural Christianity, Kino, Christian in name only, Though cultural Christianity may be declining, and by the way, the mass media wants you to believe that Christianity in America is on the way out. Oh, my goodness, doomsday's coming. We're just done. We're just done, and it's over. That's what the mass media wants you to believe. Don't believe a word of it. Because though mainline Protestantism is imploding, disintegrating, and disappearing, it does not mean that true, cross-bearing, Christ-following Christianity is in decline in America. It's just that the divide is much more clear than it has ever been, and you know what side of that divide we want to be on. Even if Christianity suffers decline in America, if the hardening is such that in our lifetime we, we see fewer and fe- fewer Christ-following people in America... Be sure of this, God is calling forth his elect out of South Korea, China, Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America. Jesus Christ has his people all over the world and he will continue to build up his church despite all opposition. In fact, he'll use the hardening of cultures to raise up his people just as he did in the first century. This is about the sovereignty of God to redeem His people and call them out of every nation for the glory of His name. Whoever believes in Him shall not be put to shame. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we give you thanks for your word of truth, and we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth and grant us the power of the Spirit 